It's good to know that it's not only up the hill that uh, people don't sit in the front row. Uh, thank you, Chin, for keeping me company up here. I know we're meant to keep some distance, but 10 metres is a fair bit, isn't it? It's, uh, I don't know about that. No. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Those are not my words. They're the words of Paul, the first words Paul speaks as he's given the opportunity to speak here before the tribune um, in Jerusalem and before his accusers here in Acts 23. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It's quite a remarkable statement, isn't it? And one which almost gets Paul a slap on the face, actually. Uh, These final chapters in the book of Acts, from about Acts 22 to the end, they tell the story of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and then his journey, really, from there to Rome, all of it under arrest. Um, There's plenty of action along the way, various hearings before uh, the tribune here, before Felix, the governor. Uh, Eventually he appeals to Caesar. Uh, There's plots to kill him. There's God's promise that we've just heard this morning that he will eventually testify about Jesus Christ in Rome, which he has longed to do. Um, And his appeal to Caesar is actually the way he gets there, in chains. And we've picked it up this morning in Acts 23 with a tribune who's in charge of keeping peace in Jerusalem. Uh, He's got Paul in his custody and he wants to know the real reason why Paul's being accused by his fellow Jews. So he's given Paul this opportunity to defend his case before himself and before the Jewish council made up of the high priest, Ananias, and a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. Needless to say, as we've heard in the reading, he doesn't get far before more trouble arises. And there's two things we're going to look at this morning. We'll spend more time on the first than the second. Um, But very quickly, Paul's actually taken away again in custody uh, but it's really more for his protection than it is any trouble that he's, uh, he's in. It's amazing how God works. Even while Paul is being arrested, uh, he's imprisoned, he's bound in chains uh, early on. Um, but we actually see God's sovereign hand upon Paul, even at this time, protecting him from the mob through the authorities. Uh, Paul's taken away and uh, later on in chapter 3, uh, this same tribune actually pulls together a small army, almost 500 men, to protect Paul as he makes his way off um, to, uh, to see the governor Felix. He gets a military convoy to protect him from his own fellow Jews who want to kill him. But this morning the tribune and we get to hear the real reason Paul's been accused and charged at all. And we're going to focus particularly on that first statement that really got up the nose of his accusers, or at least under the nose of the uh, the high priest. It's quite a bold and courageous thing to do, to tell your own story to other people who don't know you. Um, I shared with our youth group last night, I said, I'm going to show you a movie tonight. Instead of giving you a talk, I'm going to show you a movie. And this movie is called This Is Your Life, starring, and I named one of the youth group. And their eyes went up. And I said, I've got all the details of this movie from your parents and your friends and your brothers and sisters. And then I've got another one saying, I know all about you, starring somebody else. I know what you did last summer, starring... And they're all getting a little bit worried. And I said, how would it be if I actually showed a movie of everything you've ever thought as well as everything you've ever done in your life? 
None of them were too keen about that idea. They thought that would be a little bit scary. Many of them would be very ashamed of what might be up on the screen and shown. But here's Paul saying, I've done everything in my life with a good conscience before God. Nothing to be ashamed of. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? Very bold. In Proverbs 28, it's good to hear some Proverbs read out this morning. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Why would the wicked flee when no one's chasing after them? Well, they flee because they're afraid. And where does their fear come from? Their fear comes from their guilt. They run because they've got a guilty conscience. And so they always think someone is chasing them down. Just like Adam and Eve, remember in the garden, once they'd eaten the fruit they were told not to, what do they do? They run and hide from God. God wasn't pursuing them, not in that way. He was walking through the garden. But because of their guilty conscience, because of their sin, they run and hide from the very one who loves them. But the righteous, Proverbs 28 tell us, those who have no guilt, they've got no fear. They can be bold. They don't need to run and hide. But to be bold is one thing, isn't it? To be arrogant is another thing altogether. And here the high priest, Ananias, thinks Paul is being totally arrogant to be able to claim, I've done nothing in my whole life uh, that worries my conscience. I have a completely clear conscience before God. And that almost gets Paul a slap across the face. Have you ever had an argument with someone who claims they've done nothing wrong when you know they have or you feel they have? but they think they're completely innocent? Does that get up your nose? When someone you are sure is guilty of whatever wrongdoing, big or small, claims to have done nothing wrong, they're completely innocent, they walk around with a head held high as if they had no guilt whatsoever. It can really irritate us, can't it? Especially when we know better, because we do, don't we? We're omniscient, we've got perfect knowledge, we're like God, we know who's right and who's wrong, especially when it's us who've been wronged. We've got a very strong sense of justice, don't we? If you know the story of Job and his friends, they got quite infuriated with Job because they were sure that he was suffering because he must have done something wrong you know, before God and this is why he's being punished. This is why he's suffering. If you only repent, then everything will work out all right. And Job says, but I don't know what to repent of. God himself has said he's blameless to Satan early in the book. But it infuriates his friends for Job to say, what do I repent of? Paul's only got one sentence out of his mouth and he's about to be slapped on the face. It's enraged Ananias the high priest, such was the impudence of Paul as he began this defence, this great claim that he has lived his entire life before God in all good conscience. Paul was being bold, for sure. High priest thought he was being arrogant to the utmost. And I wonder how many of us could actually claim what Paul was claiming here, to have a clean conscience before God. How's your conscience today? 
Is it clean? Do you have a good conscience before God? Would you dare to claim that to somebody else? Many people would think we would be arrogant to say it, wouldn't they? Earlier this year, back in March, uh, my dad died. He had lung cancer and uh, battled with that for a little over a year. Um, And sadly, my dad died not just with regrets, as many people do, but I think dad died with a heavy and guilt-laden conscience. In the last week of his life, he shared with with mum some things that had been on his mind, things he'd done in the past, and tried to make his peace with her. I think it was more for his benefit than for mum's. It actually left mum quite shocked and not sure what to do with it all. He was trying to offload what was on his heart and mind before he died. Trouble is, confession on its own is not a saving act, is it? Uh, One preacher has said confession is simply us catching up with our sin. Confession doesn't atone for our sin. Christ has done that. Sadly, unlike Paul here in Acts 23, Dad's conscience was not good. It was not clear or clean before God. His was actually riddled with guilt and shame. And uh, in both his life and in his death, you could actually see and sense something of Psalm 32 working out. You know that psalm that says, I remain silent about my sin and I was groaning all day long and my bones felt like they were wasting away, the heavy hand of God weighing down upon me. I could see that and sense it in my own dad. Let me tell you this morning, you don't want to die like that. You really don't. You don't want to live like that with a heavy conscience and the heavy hand of God weighing upon you. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't need to live or die like that. We can be rid of all of our guilt and our shame and can actually receive a completely clean conscience without any arrogance at all. Instead, with complete humility and honesty, by God's grace, through faith, you can have a clean conscience. Free from having to be right in anyone else's eyes, which we so often want to be, as well as our own. Free from the groanings of guilt and sin and the hand of God as it weighs heavy upon us when we refuse to acknowledge our sin. How is it we could live and die with a clean conscience? Well, let's see what else Paul says about his own life and conscience for a moment. He claims here to have lived his entire life with a good conscience. As I said, it's an amazing claim. The high priest can't accept it. He threatens to strike Paul. And as we hear a little interaction between Paul and those there, Paul realises, oh, it's the high priest before me. I shouldn't have said what I said. Or actually, some commentators, perhaps maybe Paul's been quite sarcastic and says, I couldn't see anything high priestly about this man before me. Whichever way, Paul can and does say that he's lived his life, his entire life, with a good or clear conscience. Chapter earlier, he's confessed 
his own previous life, his persecution of the church. Remember, he stood there as Stephen was stoned to death, approving of it. He went off to Damascus to chase down more Christians and pull them out of their homes and arrest them. And as he was doing that, he was actually doing that with zeal for God. He actually thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was doing the right thing according to the law and the prophets. He was persecuting the church. And when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he realises he's actually persecuting the Lord of the church. But even all of that that he was doing, he did with a clean conscience because he thought he was serving his God. It's not that he had the bar set so low that, no, I've I've done everything right. No, Paul had one of the highest bars set for a standard to be met as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he met it, or so he believed, before God. It really is a remarkable claim that he has here. But then surely, once he's met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and learnt what he actually has been doing, surely his conscience would then be riddled with guilt and shame. What have I done? Let Stephen be murdered. Gone to imprison others. But he says here his conscience is clear. How can he say that? First thing we need to note here is that saying that your conscience is clear is not the same as saying that you are a sinless person, that you are perfect. It's not the same. Having a clear conscience does not make you perfectly sinless. And Paul actually, despite his bold and seemingly arrogant claim here, he would never want to claim to be sinless. On the contrary, what does he call himself elsewhere? The chief of sinners. So he's not denying his sin here. Nor is he claiming sinless perfection. Instead, he's saying, honestly and genuinely, he has sought to do God's will all his life. As we read in Philippians 3, he gives a bit of a testimony, doesn't he, about his own uh, previous life before meeting Christ. With regards to the law and righteousness, he was blameless. There was no mark on his public record. He was zealous for God, a Pharisee of Pharisees, top of the class, teacher's pet for his teacher Gamaliel. Every few years up at Coro, um, within the Baptist churches, we have to sign a, a ministry covenant, all of the leaders of the church. Um, it's a code of conduct and ministry ethics form for the Baptist churches. Um, covers insurance and a whole lot of other things. And uh, as we read that and sign it, we need to disclose any particular breaches of the law that we might have committed, including traffic offences. Uh, needless to say, not all the leaders, myself included, can claim blamelessness with regards to the law. There's a few speeding fines and things that we have to declare on that form. Now, they want to make sure there's no one who's reckless and has lost their licence and driving young people around and things like that. But we cannot claim blamelessness according to the law, as Paul does. Most of us here, I think, would be stretching the truth to say we could, or even that we've lived our whole lives before God with a clear conscience. And yet Paul does. He could claim that. And yet when he met Christ, and Christ met him, as good as his previous life had been, he counts it all as nothing. Good enough for the rubbish heap, the manure pile, the compost. All of that goodness, top of the class, all his righteousness, absolutely nothing. 
and calls himself the chief of sinners. And yet can still say, I've got a clear conscience. Today's a special day, October 31st. It's not just Halloween. It's actually an anniversary of Reformation Day. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses on the the door in the chapel in Wittenberg. Luther uh, is known to have said or write, Simul justus et peccator. Don't know what my Latin's like, but what it means is saint and sinner at the same time. That's the amazing thing of a person in Jesus Christ. He's a saint chosen by God, washed and purified by the Spirit and the blood of Christ, and a sinner at the same time. And that's what we have here with Paul. You see, the gospel doesn't leave us in a spiritual schizophrenic state. I'm a saint one day and I'm a sinner the next, doing all the good things one day and then tomorrow. That's not how it is. If anyone is in Jesus Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's Paul's testimony. And it's yours and mine too for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. One moment Paul is told, and he shares here, um, back in chapter 22, he's been told by a different Ananias, not the high priest, after he's met Jesus on the road to Damascus, remember, he's made blind, and he's told, rise and be baptised and wash away your sins by calling upon the name of the Lord. And the next moment his conscience is completely clean. So he can speak of his past actions, all his zeal for God, even though it was wrongly done. He can speak of that as though they're never there. They don't weigh on his mind. He can speak of them with a clear conscience. Ultimately, not because of what he's done, right or wrong, but because God has come to him in the person of Jesus Christ and washed him clean, completely clean in the blood of the Lamb. You here at Bethel, you're going through First and Second Corinthians. In chapter 4 of First Corinthians, Paul says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Interesting statement. That's the NIV. The ESV says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, nothing that would condemn me, but I'm not thereby acquitted. You see, Paul's confidence is not grounded in what he's done or not done. It's not even grounded in his own conscience being clear. Instead, he knows and testifies that even with a clear conscience, he isn't the one who judges himself. Christ does. And he waits for that day. It's the Lord who judges him. He knows when that day takes place, everything he's ever thought or done, hidden and unseen as well as the known things, will be revealed. Not just our deeds, but the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And yet he says, my conscience is clear. He's not being arrogant. He's actually being tremendously humble and faithful, trusting in Christ alone to be his judge. Not himself or any other person. As you read through Acts, there's a number of times we can pick up Paul um, and others sort of sharing what the gospel, declaring the gospel He's not necessarily spelling out the gospel here in this opportunity, but he is testifying to it. He is testifying to the full forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ and the cleansing power of his atoning death. That's where Paul's assurance lies. 
And it's where our assurance needs to lie as well. Like the writer of Hebrews tells us, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if all those Old Testament sacrifices could could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works? so that we might serve the living God. Think about Isaiah. What did he learn as he was met with the holy, holy, holy Lord? Couldn't even worship with the angels. As a man of unclean lips. And yet the seraph comes and takes a coal from the altar. It's a burning altar. Sacrifice has been made. Places that coal on Isaiah's lips. And what does he say? Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And what's Isaiah's next action? When the Lord says, who will I send? Here I am, send me. His conscience has been purified, his guilt atoned for, so that he might serve the living God. Exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And so we too, as God's people today, have been prepared and purified. We've been washed and cleansed so that we might be ready and willing and able to serve the living God with a clean conscience. What does that mean practically? Theologically, we can say, yes, yes, that sounds good. I can see that in the Bible. What does that mean for us on the ground, in our lives, in our homes, in our church? To have a conscience cleansed so that we might serve the living God. Let me give you just one example. What are the two greatest commandments? To love God with your whole heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. And as the church, we're called and commanded time and time again to love one another, aren't we? Now we could spend a whole year looking at all the verses in scripture about loving God and loving one another in our church, in our home, in our workplaces, in our worship. But unless we have a conscience that has been washed clean by the blood of Christ, we will never actually truly love another person. Unless our conscience has been purified, we will never truly love another person. Why do I say that? Because when we have a guilty conscience... All of our motives, all of our intent, all of our action will be to actually justify ourselves and try to make up for our wrongdoing, our lack of love, rather than freely giving out of a heart of love. Any act of love that we do with a guilty conscience will be tainted with selfish motive. That's how essential it is how important it is that we receive a clean conscience from God. It's how important it is for a husband and wife to actually know the grace and forgiveness of God so that they might love one another truly and fully and freely. As I share with young couples before they get married, I often tell them, uh, there's a book I often give them called When Sinners Say I Do, 
You've got two sinners coming together to live together and be one. What's the most important thing? That they know God's grace and forgiveness and that they share that grace and forgiveness together. Otherwise, how else can God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love flow freely through us if we first don't know his grace, mercy and forgiveness ourselves? Forgiving your brother or sister or your mother or your father or your husband or your wife or your children or your parents, that is actually an act of service, an act of worship to God. That we've been freed to do through the cleansing of our conscience. It's one of the reasons why he's washed us clean, so that we might get on with loving one another fully. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Not the most righteous person that loves the most. It's the one who's been forgiven the most, who loves the most. And friends, we know, don't we, just how much, or do we, we have been forgiven. All of our sin, once scarlet red, now whiter than pure snow, as far as the east is from the west, How clean has he washed our hearts? What does David pray after his sin with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, Uriah? Create in me a clean heart, O God. He longs for it. He needs it. He's desperate for it. Don't cast me away from your presence. I don't want to run away and hide. I need to know you. I need to know your mercy and your forgiveness. Would you wash my conscience clean? That's what the word heart in the Old Testament is about. It's the nearest word to the conscience in the New Testament. And then as we've received that and as we know that in Christ and then we live our lives around one another, just a whiff of our clear conscience, the grace of Christ in us will actually be the aroma of Christ to those we share with in life. To some, it will be the aroma of life. To others who have denied Christ and are perishing, it will be a stench of death for any one of us to actually live with a clean conscience. Because they'll be actually confronted with the power of God. And it's that stench, the audacity of Paul's claim here to have a clear conscience, which provokes the high priest to strike Paul. His confidence and his good conscience come across to Ananias here as utter arrogance. But Paul's confidence is not in himself, he's not being arrogant. His confidence is in Christ, it's in the gospel, it's in the power of God to save. It's in the promises of God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's where our confidence lies, or should lie. Because only there in Christ has our sin and our guilt been atoned for once and for all. Which brings us secondly and briefly to Paul's second statement which provokes yet another fierce response from his accusers. He's avoided the slap in the face. He's apologised for speaking ill of the high priest. And then he discerns those, of, those among him, around him who are accusing him. 
And he realises some of them are Pharisees and some are Sadducees. There's two groups united in their anger against Paul, but quite divided in their theology. And Luke tells us the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, which I'm sure some of you have heard is why they were sad, you see. You heard that one before? I know it's an old joke, but we actually have to keep telling it because then our young people will never remember and learn. Every generation needs to hear that. They didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees, which is why they were sad, you see. But you see, it's actually more than a joke. It's actually quite profound. We live in a time today where hope is a rare commodity. Don't we? We're looking forward to the future, even our eternal future. It's not really on the agenda for many people. They just want the here and now fixed. We live in a day where any thought of eager expectation or anticipation of what's to come has been exchanged for the lie of short-term gratification. Rather than thinking glory and the best thing is yet to come, we try to get the best thing now. Why else do you think people spend tens of thousands of dollars on their wedding day? Because they've got no hope for the great marriage to come, the most glorious wedding day of all. Their wedding day has to be it because they can't see anything bigger or better. It's always struck me as a young person watching ads on TV of the kids in Ethiopia and elsewhere, well vision ads I think they were, um, these kids with bloated tummies but you could see their ribs, they were just skin and bone, they had no food, starving and yet they're given a shoebox or something, a, a bowl of rice and they have huge big grins on their face. The joy of life that they had was something so little. How much joy like that do we have? in our affluent nation today. We have so much, but so much depression, anxiety and despair to go with it because we've lost our hope. And see, as a nation, I think we've lost sight and hope of the resurrection. And therefore, we are sad, you see. It's not just the Sadducees. Anyone who has lost sight and faith in the hope and the resurrection, which is what Paul raises here, are sad, you see, today. Paul raises the hope and the resurrection and there's great division amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole riot just about breaks out and the tribune has to take Paul away for his own protection to hear from him another time. And you see, Christ's resurrection is the hope and the grounds of our resurrection, of our hope, isn't it? And it's actually the grounds of which we can know that there's no condemnation for us, that our conscience has been cleansed. In Romans 5, Paul says that hope, what we look forward to in the future, does not disappoint us or does not bring us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our hope for the future that we have today is actually secure in what God has done in the past in Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. The resurrection of Christ is our hope of glory. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul says, then we're still in our sin, our hope is futile, and we of all people are to be most pitied. But Christ has been raised from the dead. 
So our faith is not futile. We're no longer in our sin. And we have hope not just for this life, but for the life to come. Is that our hope? Is that what we're looking forward to with eager expectation? And can we look forward to that day when we stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ with a clear conscience? Friends, we don't need to run and hide from God because he's come to us. The end of Psalm 23 is this lovely verse that says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow me, it's the same word used for when Pharaoh chases down, pursues Moses and the, and the Hebrews through the Red Sea. God is pursuing us, not like Pharaoh, angry, trying to get us... No, God is pursuing us, following us with mercy and goodness. And he's come to us in Jesus Christ, who lived a righteous life and his righteousness will be ours. He died in our place so that his blood would wash us conscience clean. And so that we too, when we hear the gospel, when we hear Christ himself say to us, as he did to Paul, rise and be baptised and have your sins washed away as you call upon Jesus Christ. Is that what's happened to you? Is that your testimony? Do you know the cleansing, atoning power of the blood of Christ shed for you? Do you have the sure hope of the resurrection today? Do you want that to be your story? I mentioned my dad earlier on who died with many regrets. And just to finish, I'm not sure where my dad ended up with God uh, before he died. I asked him near the end. Uh, we'd often chat about some things, but he was never really wanted to get too much too deep. I think a guilty conscience will do that to you. But I asked if he'd be happy for me to pray with him, which he was. And we hadn't talked much about his regrets or his guilt. He wasn't the sort of fellow who opened up about that in life or death. But they were there and we both knew it. And as I prayed, among other things, I asked that I asked the Lord that Dad might know and receive his grace and forgiveness that we all need so badly, that we don't deserve his mercy and the love we so desperately need. And at the end, after I said, Amen, Dad's eyes stayed closed for a while and he kept hold of my hand and squeezed it. And his words were, And I fully endorse that. Probably about as good and as close to an amen as I would get from my dad. Or God would get from my dad. And as I said, I'm not sure where he ended up with it all. I have to leave that really between him and the Lord. It's nice to have great words of comfort and assurance, but that's not the word I want to give us this morning. The word I want us to hear this morning is that right now, we can have confidence in Christ. Right now, we can know the wonderful relief of having a conscience cleansed, our sins forgiven and our guilt atoned for. Don't leave it till your last days.
Because first of all, you don't know when they'll come. But more better than that, why not live life now with a conscience clean and the freedom of knowing your sins are forgiven? The amazing power of knowing your sins, your heart has been washed clean in the blood of Christ. Hear the words of Christ that he said to Paul that day. Rise, believe and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In Jesus Christ, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you that according to your great mercy you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thank you, Father, that in the blood of your dear Son you have forgiven our sins, washed us clean so that we might know you and call upon you as Father, that we might live in that great freedom and relief and joy of knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray this morning for any here who have got sins that they've been holding on to, they have not acknowledged to you, that they are carrying around a burden of guilt and shame that they need not carry. Father, that you would draw near to them, that they would draw near to you, that you would create in them a clean heart, wash them clean, and grant to them freedom from that burden and the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.